Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox. You're listening to me, your social worker with a microphone on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. It's the Catherine Zox Show. We have three guests coming up in this hour, an attorney, two doctors. Uh, the first is uh, Jim Lang. Uh, he's going to be talking to us about some of these new estate laws and his new book, Retire Secure. Uh, our second guests are Dr. Anderson and Dr. Gaiman, who were honored as Best Doctors in Texas 2010, and uh, they run a uh, facility in Texas that uh, is described as concierge medicine. But first, uh, we have Jim Lang here on the show. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Catherine. And Jim, not just an attorney, you are a CPA and attorney and a radio host and a best-selling author. So um, you have all the credentials, and you have a new book, Retire Secure. Um, you know, you asked me, you know, before we started the show, what are we going to talk about? Well, one of the things I'm really interested in, and maybe being of a certain age, but um, how the new estate laws, because I know you're, this is an area of expertise for you, how the new estate laws, which have just been passed and I guess signed by the president, could limit a surviving, surviving spouse's independent access to the family money. This could be a real issue, especially with all these baby boomers who are here and who will soon <laughs> perhaps not be here with us. Yeah, this, this is actually a huge issue because you have unintended consequences from the new law. And one of the problems, and it, and it applies really to a lot of people who have seen attorneys and they have paid good money to get their estate plans put in order and they thought they're okay. In fact, many, many of your listeners right now, I guarantee you, think that they have a perfectly appropriate state, estate plan. They paid a lawyer maybe even a couple thousand dollars to prepare wills and trusts and documents and everything else, and they think everything is fine and that when their husband or when their wife dies that everything is going to them, and it's not. And the new law compounds the situation, and there's a real problem. And if you like, I can get into the nitty-gritty a little bit of... Well, we're, late, but we're not lawyers and we're not accountants, or at least most of us aren't who are listening. So, Jim, just give us, uh, I guess, you know, ta- I don't know whether it's legal or tax 101, but um, what is the new law? Describe it to us in layman's terms. What does this mean for us as the consumer, as the husband or wife who dies, thinking that we're leaving everything to our spouse and our, this is not the case? Sure. The, the new law refers to the exemption amounts. Now, in the old days, many of your, your listeners will remember that you were allowed to leave up to $600,000 to anybody you wanted and not have any transfer taxes. And then that number was gradually bumped up 
and it was a, a, then it was a million dollars, and then in 2009 it creeped up to 3.5 million, meaning that if you died with up to 3.5 million and you left it to anybody you like, there was no federal estate tax. And then in 2010 there was no federal estate tax, and now in 2011 the new law is you could die with up to five million dollars in your estate without a state tax, and if you're married, you could, between the two of you, you could leave up to $10 million to presumably children, but it could be anybody, without paying any federal estate tax. And that sounds good, but that's not really the problem. Okay, and that sounds great. So in other words, a couple, if they have, they could leave up to $10 million to say they're five kids and it's all tax-free, Federal taxes are free. I mean, you don't have, there's no, as you say, transferring tax. Right, and, and, and so that sounds great, particularly if you have five, six, eight million dollars. But let's say you're like most of your listeners and you don't have five or six million dollars. Maybe you have a half a million dollars or a million dollars or you have a number way, way below five or eight million dollars where federal estate tax is a consideration. So let's say that you're one of these listeners. And, you know, you, you're, let's say, do, you're doing okay, um, and you would ultimately, at your death, you want to pass it to your wife, or if you're the wife, you want to pass it to your husband, and after both of you are gone, you, you, pass it to your, you want to pass it to your kids. And let's say five years ago or a number of years ago, you were in the attorney's office, and that's basically what you said. You said, you know, the first thing I want to do is take care of myself and, and my husband or my wife, during our lifetimes, and then after one of us dies, we want to provide for the survivor, and then ultimately, at both of our deaths, go to the kids. But what the attorney did is he didn't just say, oh, okay, I'll do a simple will. I leave, we call them I love you wills. I leave everything to you, my husband. I leave everything to you, my wife. I leave, and, you know, you leave everything to me, and when the both of us go, we go to our children. And that might have been appropriate, but what the attorney did is he drafted a trust. And the terms of the trust are income to spouse, right to invade principal for health maintenance and support, and at the second death, the money goes to the children. And this has become very, very standard estate planning. So you're saying that the monies go into, let's say, are we taking a number like $300,000 or, you know, um, we put it in trust for your spouse? Well, if, if, if they put a number on it, we would probably be okay. But see, the attorneys did something that they thought was even trickier, and they didn't put a number on it. They put a formula on it. And the formula is so complicated that if you were to read it, you wouldn't understand it. But what it means is, in English, if you, if you analyze all that language, it says, basically, take whatever number the unified credit shelter amount that the IRS allows you to pass at death without tax, and that's how much money goes into the trust. Anything over and above that goes to the spouse. So let's say back in the old days when the number was $600,000, Let's say you had a $1.2 million estate, maybe half the money would go to the trust, half the money would go to the spouse, and the spouse would have their own chunk of money. The problem today is with the very high exemption amounts, and particularly after um, portfolios are depleted after the recession, 
the language of the wills that many of your listeners have right now does not direct money to the survivor, even though that's what they might think. It directs money to a trust where they only get the income. So now, instead of, and see, the thing is, with the exemption at 5 or $10 million for both, saving estate taxes is probably the least of their worries. Just, you know, getting by comfortably is a much bigger worry, and their estate plans actually hurt them, don't help them. And that, so, that, and, that's and a most huge would, problem. So are you saying the average person probably is not aware of this, who, say, done, did their will two or three years ago, and now that the estate laws have changed, we need to go back and take a look and examine it and do something different? What would we do differently? Well, first, the first thing you could do, let's, let's start with the simple solution, which is what you probably wanted when you came to the attorney in the first place. And I've been doing this for 30 years, and I will tell you, now, what I want to talked about really refers most to what I call the leave it to beaver family that is original husband original wife and the same kids so, so it gets a little bit more complicated if we have kids from his marriage and kids from her marriage yeah but and, and Jim in reality we're talking leave it to beaver family is what 40 percent maybe even less so of, of the families in the United States today well it, it, it is for for a lot of the younger couples um, for the older couples it's been my experience that a lot of those couples have stayed together. And frankly, um, this, the solution that I'm talking about, e- even the simple solution, where the, the simple solution for most estate plans, or for at least a lot of them, are what I call I love you wills. I leave everything to you, you leave everything to me, something happens to both of us, it goes to our kids. Now, even that, isn't an appro- that is not appropriate if you have children from a prior marriage. So if you have children from a prior marriage... I want to add something else that's not appropriate or one might think about this. Let's say you leave everything to your spouse and then you you die and your spouse remarries. You can't be guaranteed then that that money will go to your children because then the spouse remarries and maybe they want to leave it to their new spouse or their new spouse's children or so it doesn't really protect maybe the next generation of your own children if you do it that way well you're right you're taking a certain risk and that's why that's why to me you have to look at each situation is obviously different but the a lot of people would prefer having access to the money rather than having their money tied up. So let's, so let's say for discussion's sake that you're married and your husband dies or your wife dies, and instead of having together when you were married, both of you had control of all the marital assets. If you have this kind of trust in place, now all of a sudden you have to go to the banker or you have to go to the trustee, who, by the way, can't be you, and ask just for you know everyday living money, let alone even more than that. And most people don't want to be put in that position, and particularly families who who have the same children. Yeah, I understand that. I mean, and, and, and I mean, I as a you know a particular issue, but I still get back to, especially today in this climate where things are so you know, volatile in terms of marriages and people change in relationships that you aren't, and maybe this is where I'm coming from personally, if you don't leave it in trust and you leave it to your spouse, you kind of leave it so that, I mean, they 
could be influenced by other people or they could spend all the money and then your children your your uh, children never get the money i mean i think that's was isn't that one of the reasons one would take their mo- put their money in trust so that well, the- it, it is and, and some attorneys still advocate that um, and i think that i think that that kind of thing is probably fine if you have in certain situations so i'll give you an example let's say that you are married to somebody who has children from prior marriage. And if you leave everything to your new wife, you're afraid that your new wife, after you die, is going to leave everything to her kids or her charity or or her new boyfriend or or whatever, and that the children from your first marriage will get nothing. In that case, what you might... In that case, that trust might be appropriate. Frankly, an easier way to do it, in my opinion is to leave so much money to the child or children from the first marriage and so much money to the surviving spouse and not have the expense and aggravation and all the tax problems of the trust. You know, one of the things that it's... So what you're saying is leave the money outright directly to the spouse and then say you have two children and then leave the money outright directly to each one of your children, let's say. Is that what you're saying? Well, that, that can be done assuming that there is enough money so, you know, let's say that there's a couple million dollars and that, or either even a million dollars and you want to make sure that the children from the first marriage get at least a chunk of it. To me, rather than tying up the money in a trust for all those years, because, you know, let's say that your spouse is 60 or 70 when you die, they might hang on for another 20, 30 years and your kids don't get any money until they're in their 60s. Yeah, that's another issue because people live so much longer. Uh, as you're saying. So, yeah, if you have a spouse who dies at 60, the other one might live to be 85. And so so you you have all this money tied up in a trust. The spouse isn't happy, by the way, because they don't have unrestricted use of the money. The kids aren't happy because they don't get any money until, until you know, the, the next parent dies. So sometimes what is a simpler and certainly much less expensive solution because it costs money, you have to, that trust has to file a tax return, that, that trust is taxed at the highest rates, uh, without getting into details, if the trust, if the underlying asset of the trust is an IRA or retirement plan, you have miserable income tax consequences. So a lot of times that trust is not the best way to go, but that's what a lot of people have. And I would say that the trust is even worse if you do have a traditional marriage where you have the same kids. Because then a lot of times what's going to happen is the spouse is going to really have a limited lifestyle when maybe there isn't even all that much money around. So maybe the estate, the total estate might be $500,000. And now all of a sudden, instead of the spouse having $500,000, all they have is the income from $500,000. And that might be $20,000 a year. Jim, there's one of the reasons, and we we don't have that much time left, but I just want to... Two things, because um, we have to say goodbye. But um, I mean, there is there are reasons for setting up trust, i.e., the money's protected in case your wife gets sued or your husband gets sued. They can't go after you directly because the money's in a trust. Um, you can get married again, and and your second spouse wants to sue you for money, but the money's protected. So there are some protections in a trust. I think we do have to say that, but. Um, just in the, give us like you know something that we can sort of hang on to. Well, your book, Retire Secure. We can, if we um, 
take a look at your book. We'll get more information about this issue, I'm sure. So um, give us a website where we can go to because um, this is an ongoing conversation, I think, and I think one of the lessons I've learned from you on the show is I guess you really have to be you have to go to your attorney and at least update your your will or take a look at it once every couple of years, or I think it, it to be responsible. Well, I think you certainly do, and particularly if if maybe not after every couple of years, after every major tax change. And in summary, though, because I know we're wrapping up, is I would say that trusts are appropriate for some people, but not for all people, and particularly not for Leave It to Beaver families that trust each other and have the same kids. In that case, what I tend to prefer is a combination of I love you wills, meaning we're going to empower the surviving spouse, but we also have the the trust as an option. And we decide not now, but we decide after the first death where the money should go. I'd love to, obviously, you know, I talk about this for hours and hours, but the upshot of it is, is I agree with you completely. People should be taking a look at their wills. They should understand what their wills say. And if they are interested, they can form a more flexible type retirement and estate plan, which is what I'm an advocate of. Great advice. Jim Lang, CPA, attorney, radio host, best-selling author, and his new book is Retire Secure. Thanks so much for joining me this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Great having you on the show. Uh, coming up next, and we're going to take a short break, is before we uh, talk to them are Dr. Anderson and Dr. Gaiman, uh, both doctors who have been honored as Best Doctors in Texas 2010 by Newsweek magazine. They are physicians um, who have a concierge medical practice uh, described as the executive medicine of Texas. And uh, we're going to be talking to them about concierge medicine in just a few minutes. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to Voice America and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise Tune in every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific time for The Growth Strategist with Aldana Ambler. On the show, Aldana and some of today's top business professionals will discuss some of today's most pressing business issues that hold you, the business owner, back. Aldana will also give you 21 ways to grow with her list of growth strategies. Grow smart. Grow profit. 
and grow your business with Aldana Ambler and the Grow Strategist every Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Bottom Line in Business Talk, Voice America Business. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time, the number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on World Talk Radio and VoiceAmericaVariety.com. Joining me this morning, Dr. Mark Anderson and Dr. Walter Gaiman, they are physicians who run the Executive Medicine of Texas Concierge Doctors Concierge Medicine. They were both honored as Best Doctors in Texas 2010 by Newsweek Magazine. They also have uh, a radio show. They co-host a radio show with Judith Gaiman, uh, and the name of the show is The Staying Young Radio Show. I need to listen to that one, I'll tell you. But right now we're going to be talking about concierge medicine. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Nice to have you on this morning. Well, good morning. Morning. Thank you. It's great. You know, concierge medicine, um, you know, when you mention that word, uh, a lot of people have difficulty with it. They think of concierge medicine as kind of an elite kind of medicine that's practiced by certain physicians, and I'm going to ask you how many, I guess, there are in this country. Um, what's the difference? What is concierge medicine? Why don't one of you give me a definition so we, we you know, we have an understanding of, of what it is. Mark, you want to take that one? Well, the concierge practices um, can be a broad spectrum of practices. So uh, in our sense, what we do is we have uh, executive-level physicals. Uh, we're, we're not uh, limited by what insurances uh, will allow us to do, and so we can expand upon that. And then as part of that service, uh, we're available for the patient's uh, uh, phone calls and, and things to a level that you're not going to get at a regular practice. Um, oftentimes when they refer, use the term concierge practice, some of these practices have uh, annual fees um, that, uh, you know, quote, get you in, kind of like joining a club, and then it will cover the office-based services and then anything that uh, a hospital might require, outpatient such, uh, would fall back in under your insurance plan if you had it. Um, so there's a lot of different styles uh, of practice that fall under that, but mostly these are emerging uh, in uh, response to the Harry Carey world of uh, primary care where it's, uh, you know, see lots of patients, you don't get to spend a lot of time with them. We as physicians are frustrated with that, uh, and patients are frustrated because they don't feel like they're getting their questions answered and their health care issues addressed. So, Dr. Anderson or Dr. Gammon, what... You said you mentioned something about a fee. So if you are going to, as a consumer, want to have a doctor who's in a concierge practice, is there a different, there's always a fee? Is there always an annual fee? Is it different in each state? Or how is it, is it regulated? Or how does that work? Let's say I'm in, I am, I'm in New York. I want to, I'm looking for a concierge doctor. What does that mean? Does that mean that I, my insurance will cover it or not necessarily or? How does that work? And then over and above that, I pay an annual fee for my for the services. It, it really depends. Every practice of concierge medicine is quite different. Uh, many of them charge a, a yearly fee. 
in some cases, all that does is get you access to the doctor on an immediate basis, and they still charge your insurance company, uh, you know, when you come in. In our case, uh, what happens is, you know, we do these executive physicals, which are very detailed, all-day exams, what we call presidential physicals, and then some of our patients pay a yearly fee, and for that yearly fee, that covers all their outpatient visits to us, their blood work, all the routine sort of office-based things that they might need. So they know that their yearly outpatient costs are fixed. They can see us, and then they can file their own insurance. And, you know, right now, many insurances have very large deductibles. And so, you know, patients are going to wind up paying quite a bit to their deductible. They might, for example, have a $3,000 deductible. And so if they're going to pay this money out of pocket, why go to an office, wait two hours to see the doctor and spend 10 seconds with him? You know, you can spend the same money and see the doctor right away, have no waiting, and have all the time you deem necessary to be with your doctor. And, you know, uh, patients aren't the only ones that are frustrated with what we call the managed care treadmill we doctors don't like running around from room to room. We don't like keeping patients waiting. It's just the economics of managed care make this so difficult. So, so are I you think saying if you were able to see, and I guess concierge doctors are able to see less patients because they can charge more money so they can still run their practice and they can spend more time with you. Um, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I think the way medicine is practiced today, you see your doctor for five minutes and, and, and he, he's running and you're running. I mean, that's not good medicine. Um, not at all. Not no. at all. Uh, but then you said uh, I, I, that you, you described it as you get the presidential treatment. You, you know, you come in once a year, you get, a, you get all your tests done. It may take a whole day and you spend it with the doctors. Um, that. Is this also, it makes it sound like it's for the elite, for the rich and famous. I know you have a lot of, of uh, I would say, clients, patients who are the rich and famous, uh, but you don't necessarily have to be, do you? I mean, I'm looking at some of the, the how much it costs, like, say, $1,200. I, I know in, uh, I have a, an older friend in Baltimore, Maryland, who has a concierge doctor. I think it's only $1,200 more a year, and this person has access to him 24-7. Uh, doesn't sit in the waiting room. Uh, you know, it's an older person, uh, so it works out really well. Um, so it, it, it's not that much more expensive. I mean, a lot of times, what uh, the the fees that are associated with these uh, practice because you cut out the overhead that's associated with your business office and the staffing and you know filing of the insurance. It it actually ends up not being a lot of times a lot more expensive than what you would pay, you know, doing on your insurance. And if you have flexible spending accounts or medical savings accounts, those funds can be used on a uh, to uh, pay for some of these services. And uh, you do get that kind of access. Um, you know, there, the, some practices go all the way to where they'll limit the number of patients that they will have in the practice at the time. Um, you know, my father moved to Florida and tried to get into practice and was all signed up. And they said, uh, well, great, you're on the wait list. And he, he kind of thought he was already in. And he's like, well, how many people are on the wait list? And you're, you're number 55. And they said it'll probably take, you know, a year for um, for you to get in. And so uh, a lot of these practices, especially where there are older populations, uh, are quite busy, and there's waiting lists sometimes to get into them. So and there's you know, a need. The, so what you're saying the is iron, this, yeah, The irony of all this is that 
by spending more time with the doctor, by getting more detailed uh, histories and, uh, let's just say, upfront more detailed physicals, it's all about prevention. You know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and it's been proven over and over again in healthcare dollars. For every dollar spent on prevention, you save three dollars spent on treatment. And yet, you know, the managed care companies, they don't get it. I mean, they give lip service to prevention, and then they never pay for anything for prevention. So ironically, yes, there's more upfront costs potentially, but in the long run, people are healthier and do better. Well, first of all, and I think people do better when they're able to establish, um, you know, from a social work perspective, and I've done a lot of hospital social work, if you can establish a relationship with your doctor and he or she knows you, and when you walk into the office, you're not anxious about having to get everything out in five minutes, and the doctor has an opportunity to actually look at the patient. I mean, I've been in situations where the doctor isn't even looking at me. I mean, (laughs) you know, they're doing all the tests, but maybe if you looked at me, you may, may have... Some, uh, you know, you may be able to make a better diagnosis or if you have time to talk to the patient, you hear things that you otherwise would not have heard. I think this maybe this ties into the, the practice of concierge medicine. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in, uh, in medicine, in medical schools, the students are taught that a lot of patients come in to the office with a complaint that's called the entrance ticket. So, for example, you know, the entrance complaint might be, I have a wart on my finger, but you look at the uh, patient and they're sweating and they're nervous and they're anxious, and you know they're, they're not there just for a wart. They're there for something else, but it's so embarrassing or nerve-wracking, they didn't want to tell the receptionist. And if you just rush in the room, oh, wart, we'll freeze it, see you, slam the door, you know, the patient isn't getting what they came for. So you're 100% correct. And it's very similar when you're treating somebody with a psychological illness. Uh, we call it in social work the presenting problem is usually not the problem because the presenting problem is the easiest one to present, either consciously or unconsciously. And so you really have to sit and talk to the, the client to find out what the underlying problem is. And, and I guess that's what you're describing. And you can't do that in five minutes, I don't, whether it's in medicine or you're a psychologist or whatever it is. Well, and that's true. And then the other that plays in a role is, is continuity of care. So, I mean, at our practice, uh, there's just the two of us, and, and uh, you know, you pretty much are going to see the same physician and talk to him. You know, there's backup available when one of us is not available, uh, but we dedicate ourselves to our individual group of patients and uh, know them pretty well. I mean, they're on my cell phone, and, and uh, they call, and, and it pops up their name, and I got access to their medical records electronically, so even if they're out of city, out of state, out of country, um, you know, we, we know what's going on with them. So that's Dr. Gannon, right? It's Dr. Anderson. Dr. Anderson, okay. Uh, but how, let me ask you this from a practical point of view. Like, okay, they can call you on their cell. Can they email you too? Oh, perfectly acceptable. Yeah. I mean, we, we open up as much access as uh, need be. The irony of it is, is is we really get very few phone calls uh, from them uh, because especially, that, you know, that they're not calling at 2 or 3 in the morning. Um, you know, sometimes we have had overseas patients where time zone changes are a little difficult to try to catch up with, but um, they, they pretty much, uh, you know, reserve it for office hours, and uh, it's not a burden on our end at all. We're happy to do it. Because that was my next question. Could they drive you crazy? I mean, you're, if, you have, if you're accessible 24-7, email, 
uh, cell phone, they could be calling you constantly. But I guess if you're not, if, you, if, if, if a patient, if you don't feel desperate, maybe they're not calling in desperation because they know they can always reach you. Well, I think that's, that's right. part of it. And I also think they, they feel comfortable that, uh, uh, you know, they've, they've had a lot of those issues addressed previously, so they're not anxious about uh, this symptom. Hey, we've already talked about this symptom and what it means, and maybe it's not, you know, it's just a, an anxiety symptom, and they can uh, have that comfort level that they're not dying of disease X, Y, Z, because uh, they've, they've had their health care issues addressed. They they don't worry about their medications. We've gone through medications. These are the side effects and, and et cetera, et cetera, and much more detailed. Um, so they understand it better, and that gives them a comfort level so they don't get anxious. Do you, doctors, do you end up seeing families? I mean, I, I had uh, been reading about concierge medicine. One of the things they say that the practices that are growing are in internal medicine, family practice, uh, even dental pediatrics, which I thought was interesting. But um, is there... Would you see the whole? Do you end up seeing the whole family? Well, it's very common to see husband and wife. On occasion, we'll see teenagers, uh, but you know, generally in the United States, parents generally take their kids to pediatricians. It's not that we couldn't see kids; we can, but it's just sort of a tradition in the U.S. Unlike other countries. So how long, if we came to your office, or if I came to your office and I was one of your patients, how long would I have to sit and wait uh, for to see one of you? What's the waiting time? Uh, two Zero. seconds. If you have an appointment, <laughs> I had a I had a fellow last week. His appointment was, was at seven forty-five. Uh, I was there at six forty-five to prepare. He arrived at seven. I saw him immediately. Uh, you know, we send them out ahead of time a 24-page questionnaire uh, for their physicals, and so we have that ahead of time, and we've reviewed it, so we're ready to roll. So th- there's no waiting at all. That's amazing to me. I'm thinking about each doctor that I see and how long I have to wait. Uh, and I've, I've even gone up to the, the, the front desk and said, you, I'm leaving because I have things I have to do, and you have to call me on my cell. I mean, because then I'll be back, but I'm not going to sit here for an hour and a half. Well, what's the value of your time? I mean, yeah. you know, it's that same thing as if, uh, you know, for the little extra you spend, what's the value of your time? I mean, when we need patients for follow-up labs, oftentimes they come in, you know, fasting. There's not anybody waiting ahead of them, and they walk straight back, and they've got their labs drawn, and um, they're in and out of the office in 10, 15 minutes and, you know, on their way to work or wherever they need to be. Yeah, you make a good point because value of your time, and I think a lot of frustrated consumers, and I'm calling them consumers or patients, um, often go to the doctor and feel like their time isn't valued. Your, you know, I had a, a friend of mine's a psychologist, and she went, she just recently went to the doctor, got to the doctor's office, she canceled all her patients so that she could make this appointment, gets to the doctor's office, and the receptionist says, well, the doctor's not here. You're going to see the physician's assistant. She said, I'm not going to see that. I came here. I canceled all my patients to see the doctor. So she said, okay, you don't have, you'll have, he's not here. Blah, blah, you can, I'll make another appointment, made another appointment. So, but you're talking about someone's time and money uh, in her case. Um, you know, the, that kind of a scenario I think is, is not unique. Uh, well, not only for the office visit, but what if that was something that could have been addressed over the phone? 
you know, that she wouldn't even, you know, could have taken care of in between her clients and, and not had to miss half a day and, and go through that frustration level. So it's yeah, right, easy. Right now, a lot of doctors, you know, they, they can't charge for phone calls, unlike, you know, lawyers and others. And so they encourage the patient to come into the office. But if you paid a yearly fee and it can be handled over the phone, that it can be handled over the phone, again, saving time and money. So what is the reason, doctor, for not being able to charge for a phone call? Isn't that antiquated? I mean, just in a regular uh, practice, not in, it, I mean, it's, uh, it, in the uh, managed care contracts, it's, it's specifically forbidden. And uh, if you try and charge for someone like on Medicare, and Medicare requires you each and every time before you make the call for the patient to give written permission that they understand that they'll be charged. And then there's tremendous backlash from the average patient for being charged for phone calls because it, it's never been done, you know. And so it's just a, it's a quagmire to try and do that. So you can't take, I don't necessarily want to take the legal uh, profession as an example, but I mean, I, I don't understand why one couldn't sort of draw from that. I mean, I, you know, it's time and money to go into the doctor's office and to wait. It, it seems insane to me. What about emailing? Do many doctors do that? Is that? Yes, yes. We we have emailing and we have patients texting us, and I love email. Uh, and we don't charge for email right now at all, but. I love email because there's a, a record. There's a record of what the patient said and wanted. And, you know, when there's a phone call, there's often can be miscommunication, misunderstanding. But with an email, first of all, I'm not, I, I don't have to call the patient and they're busy and track them down. So it's much more efficient. And then there's a record of what they want and we can respond quite easily. So we love email. It's wonderful. And then you can sit and sort of ponder what the information on the email says, too, right? I mean, you can go back to it, you can look at it, you can think about it, if it's a, whatever the question is. Absolutely. Yeah, it's wonderful. So email, I mean, email also, I guess, isn't covered, or is it, in, in, if you're not in a concierge practice? No. E- emails and, and those type services, uh, again, have the same restrictions as far as charging for them under the health plans under the managed care plans, and then uh, anytime it's a Medicare patient, uh, you can't do it. It's just you have to have them sign an advanced beneficiary notice, and it's not plausible that you can get that done. I have two questions before we take a break, and then when we come back, I want to talk specifically about your practice. And But um, the first question is, what about the AMA and, and, and physicians? How do they respond to concierge doctors? Well, there's been some uh, controversy about it. Uh, you know, it's the uh, kind of, it, it gets labeled as it's only for the elite, it's only for those who can afford it, um, you know, which in a lot of cases, it, that's not the case. I mean, it, it's the, the same person that can afford commercial insurance. So if you're going to apply that argument to it, then it should be applied to, you know, anybody who's coming in under their commercial insurance is, quote, the elite. Um, so that's been one of the criticisms. Um, there's been some guidelines or, or trials at uh, setting some regulatory so you don't have, you know, price gouging and things like that. Um, but generally there's not any restrictions on it other than those that uh, come out from, uh, say, Medicare. Because once a patient uh, is in a, a concierge, if they're under a Medicare um, contract or being seen under Medicare, uh, you have to 
there's certain guidelines that Medicare has that uh, before you'd be allowed to charge them an annual fee, you have to offer services that Medicare doesn't offer and uh, some of those things. So uh, there's been some trials at uh, regulating, but no real set guidelines, and that's why there's a lot of variation, I think. So what about, Doctor, what about consumers? What Have you any backlash from them? You talk about, you know, of this whole idea that maybe, you know, boutique doctors, I think that's also another name that's been attached to it, concierge, boutique. Uh, does the public feel that it's a, an elitist kind of thing, or if you get that kind of a response? Well, I think that, uh, no. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a free country. No one forces you to do this. Uh, the vast majority of doctors don't have boutique practices, so there's lots of alternatives. If you're on a managed care, you know, there's, the managed care will assign you a doctor. So, you know, it's a freedom of choice, basically. It's what America's all about. Um, you have a so, certified coach or first class, or you get orchestra seats or balcony seats, and those are our choices. Well, and I think it's where people want to put their, um, you know, their resources. So, I mean, you know, people spend a lot on on cell phones and other things that if if maintaining their health, having access to it, uh, is something that they want to put that priority on, then they they should be allowed to put that priority on that and use those resources where they want. Um, so everybody makes choices and and votes with their dollars, and this is just giving them the opportunity to to put their dollars, uh, if they so choose, into their preventative and health care. I think it's an exciting concept. Uh, I mean, I, I wish I, I I'm not sure. Uh, I'll have to check it out here in New York, but I want to, uh, we're going to take a short break. We're talking to Dr. Mark Anderson and Dr. Walter Gaiman. Uh, they are concierge doctors, best doctors in Texas 2010 by Newsweek magazine, and uh, they are from Executive Medicine of Texas. When we come back, we're going to talk more specifically about your practice, you know, kind of take us through the whole thing. I'm Catherine Sox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to World Talk Radio and VoiceAmericaVariety.com. It's The Catherine Zox Show. And joining me this morning have been Dr. Mark Anderson and Dr. Walter Gaiman. They are concierge doctors. They, uh, their, their facility is in Texas, Executive Medicine of Texas. Uh, they also have co-authored two books, Executive Medicine, Optimizing Your Chances for a Longer Life, and Stay Young, Ten Proven Ste- Steps to Ultimate Health. I like the stay young part. Um, so, uh, doctors, now we're going to talk about specifically your practice. Um, concierge medicine, Texas, where you are, kind of taking us through it step by step if we were to be a patient. Mark, go ahead. <laughs> well, the, uh, starts off, like we said, we, we sent them a packet that's a 24 page intake, uh, you know, past medical history, uh, detailed review of systems, uh, current medications, uh, uh, family histories uh, of uh, first degree relatives. Um, it even has uh, social behaviors. Uh, we do a, a mini, uh, excuse me, a, a screening for depression, screening for sleep apnea. So all this information is collected uh, ahead of time. We've got it reviewed, which helps us going into uh, when we see the patient initially uh, to know what type things to focus on. Uh, and then as they come in, uh, they get a, the physical examination uh, where you know they're disrobed. We do a top to bottom, check everything out and um, hearing, vision, vital signs, a fitness evaluation, depending on what uh, the patient uh, is in for. They they may include uh, CT scans, a virtual colonoscopy, um, the, uh, do a stress test on them of various types, depending, again, if they have a risk factors for cardiac illness or not. And then uh, they get a nasopharyngoscopy, look in the back of their throat. They uh, get a lab work drawn. It's a, we've got additional labs such as vitamin levels and nutritional evaluation done. Um, and so they're they're getting all this done, and it takes anywhere from two to three or four hours, just depending on the detail. Uh, there's various levels. Obviously, somebody who's younger and healthier doesn't need quite all that than somebody who maybe is older and has some illnesses. You know, one of the things that I think is so important that you mentioned just in the beginning, when you're doing these intake histories, you know, these very comprehensive ones, if if you're filling if you are a patient and you're filling this out at home in the you know in the in your where you're comfortable where you can fill it out and be more accurate and if you're not sure about certain things you can look them up you can ask you know other family members if there are questions about your health you're not sure of and that's so different than going into a doctor's office i have to point this out where the the receptionist hands you this clipboard and asks you to check off you know your, your past history. First of all, you're there and you're usually anxious anyway when you're in the doctor's office and if you're there for the first time particularly. So it's like such a bad situation to be in. The information probably turns out to be not so accurate. So um, it's having done this beforehand is almost, it's really critical. I mean, it, it almost, the other way is, is, is just uh, almost sounds insane to do it uh, the, the way that it seems to me most practices um, get a history now. Or the doctor sitting there asking you questions when you're so nervous uh, and you're, you know, lying there half naked and he's asked, you know, asking you these kinds of questions. You're not in a position to answer them, uh, you know, about your health or your past, you know, whatever it is. 
Now, you know, uh, Catherine, interestingly, <clears throat> having uh, said all that, uh, we still go through the 24 pages, page by page. You'd be surprised how many times, and I'm sure as a social worker you'll find this amusing, how many times the patient's wife has filled out the forms. Yes, right? and I'm and not surprised. Patient... Oh, men don't do, men, real men don't do that. <laughs> yeah. I had uh, one executive who had his administrative assistant at work fill it out for him, and that was really amusing. So, Not surprising, yeah. yeah. Well, you have kind of like a double check. You get it filled out before, then you have it in front of you, and then what you say is then you go over it and you look for the red flags, I assume, whatever. Um, yeah, men... That is a problem. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because men and women view health care very differently. And if you have, and I'm sure you've had this experience, if you have a man who has the problem and he comes in with his wife, usually the wife does all the talking. Absolutely. Right, he's in there, uh, you know, articulating his uh, symptomatology. And um, we don't, uh, we do have husbands and wives that will come in and do their physicals uh, you know, together or sometimes on different dates. And um, it, usually... When that, what I've seen with them is they, they share a common uh, concern or, or interest in maintaining their health. It's not, not as much of that one-sided of, uh, you know, the wife having to drive, uh, drive the husband into the, the doctor to be seen. So uh, when we finish with all this, though, this is where we do see the wives come back in as we do, uh, we'll call it the exit interview, that once we've got all this information together, it's put together in a binder, we've got copies of the, the results of the CT scans of the carotid artery studies in the labs and a summary page on the front, uh, you know, that lists out in a, a bullet fashion uh, what the issues are and what, what steps need to be taken next. Um, we sit down with them, and we set aside easily 30 minutes to an hour to go through it page by page and answer all their questions. And a lot of times that's where the spouse uh, will come in uh, and you know, want to hear what the results of uh, the study were. And then they've got this booklet they can take home, and if they review it later and didn't remember an answer or uh, get a question answered, they call us and, and we can go over it again with them. But uh, we rarely get any phone calls back uh, uh, for questions because we go through it so thoroughly when, when they're sitting down with us. Do you find that patients are more compliant, uh, like in this case, you know, in terms of taking medicine or doing the follow-up for their tests or whatever they have to do to maintain their health, if they come in as couples, if you have them, it, or does that not make a difference? I think the compliance, I don't think that makes much of a difference, but I think the compliance issue is that because they can understand why they're taking it. So, you know, just as something as simple as a cholesterol, that if you, you know, the, the old-style world guy comes in and says, your cholesterol is high, you need to take this medication, come back and see me in three months, we'll check labs. You know, why? What am I taking? What's the ramifications? Uh, why did you choose that medication over, you know, other options? You know, those questions don't always get addressed. I always kind of laugh when they show the commercials on television where, you know, the doctor's starting the patient on a medication. He's having him sitting down in his office, and, you know, they're going to go over it all. It's like, that never happens. That is so fairy tale. Uh, you know, they write the script, and you're out the door, and, and they've moved on. So we, don't, we get better compliance because of that. Patients understand what they're taking. They know what to look for. Um, they they under, uh, understand the uh, the reasons that we wanted to use that particular uh, therapy or treatment. It's so important to do that. I have my mother who's in her 80s. Every time I mention on the radio, she gets mad at me, but because I tell her age. But uh, she recently went to the doctor, a specialist for 
something to do with her eyes. And this doctor, very young, I, I said, how old was she? And she said, well, I don't know. He looked like he was uh, 12, but he was <laughs> to me. But uh, it, because she was an older, uh, you know, because she is in her 80s, very smart lady, Smith graduate, MSW from uh, Columbia, uh, he made the assumption that she, he wouldn't be able to understand what she was talking about. And so he gave her the diagnosis and never really said anything about what, you know, and didn't explain it. And not till she got home and called her primary care physician to get the answers. Uh, but in the meantime, feeling, you know, vulnerable, terrified, for some, you know, I think that's a real, that's an issue with older people, I think, you know, making the assumption that they can't understand, uh, you know, what the doctor has to say to them. So I imagine in your practice you would find a very different scenario than that. Yeah, you know what you're describing, I'll sidebar just for a minute, I call the fluency issue. You know, when someone's, say, uh, 35 or 40 and they've been well-educated, they come into the doctor and they speak fluently and easily, you know, then the doctor communicates better. But when someone's older and they speak slower, the doctor makes the automatic assumption that they're not that bright, which is not the case at all. And here in Texas, we also, no offense to New York, we often see the Northeast bias. Just because a Texan speaks with an accent and slow, they figure he's some cowboy, a hick. He does, you know, he's not very bright, when in fact they're extremely bright. So it's this assumption, the way people speak, that automatically leads to you know, people thinking they're not so bright. And it's not the case at all. You just got to take the time and listen. That is such an important point. I mean, that whole communication issue. I mean, I think, and as you say, if someone, I mean, if someone is older, the, you would, you, for some reason, people think that they're not smart. They never really think that this person has a lot more experience than, and, and probably may know, may or may not know a lot more than, than, than the, even the, than the doctor. But so accents come into play, all of those. So really, as a doctor, you, as, you have to really sort of, I think, get in touch with your own, and I say the word prejudices, right, in, in order to, to provide Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So you call it the flu, what did you refer to it as the fluency? Issue. Issue, and you're right. And in New York, people, if, if someone has a southern accent, it's an assumption that they are, um, a hick or that they're, you know, they're not well-educated or, you know, all of those kinds of things. Not true, obviously, but, yeah, that, that's, that's definitely true if you're in Boston or New York or Philadelphia. The, um, you know, we talk about in the book, in Staying Young, you were mentioning getting the history. You know, the first chapter is Know Your Family History, uh, you know, and, and getting that history from the relatives and then, uh, we go into chapter two is get a good baseline physical, which is what we've been talking about. And then, you know, we talk in the other chapters, it's, it's common sense things, good nutrition, uh, good exercise patterns, uh, you know, how certain foods uh, can affect the certainty. All this is information that, uh, you know, we can go into detail with. We have a, a registered dietitian on site that if it's appropriate, we get her involved. Uh, we, we have the trainers come over and, and do a physical evaluation. You know, your mother's example of she may have a little gait instability uh, that puts her at risk for fall, but we can get the trainers to show her some, you know, exercises to help her core so she's more stable. And you just prevented a fall and a major problem, but you're not going to get that kind of detail, uh, you know, at uh, your regular visit. So, you're but that's what people want. That's that. what people need. We have need. to say goodbye. I could keep on talking to you, doctors. This is fascinating stuff. I Maybe mean, we have you on the show again. Uh, I'll mention your book again. Um, Stay young. 
which is you've just been describing, 10 Proven Steps to Ultimate Health. You can buy that at bookstores everywhere online. Doctors Mark Anderson and Dr. Walter Gaiman uh, describing their executive medicine practice in Texas. Um, lots of great information. Thanks so much. It, it was You're great very welcome. You. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Hope you had a good morning. Have a great week, and uh, we'll talk to you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.